Over the past week, I've spoken about the five faculties. It's been one of the threads that's informed these talks, these five qualities that we develop on the path, uh, conviction, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, insight. It begins, as I spoke about on the first, in the first talk, with conviction. You know, we have conviction in the path. We have conviction that there is a greater happiness. You know, it's why we're here, because we have that conviction. Uh, we have conviction in this path, in this dharma, uh, that it leads to a greater happiness, you know. If we thought a greater happiness was back home, we'd be back home. Ultimately, it comes down to conviction in ourselves, the happiness inside. And that really is so much of what enables us to move forward. You know, we have conviction in ourselves. We have conviction in what lies inside of us. Now, conviction in the Buddha will only take you so far. Conviction in the group and the people and the teachers will only take you so far. Ultimately, we learn to have conviction in ourselves and what's inside of ourselves. When we have that conviction, we make effort. The more we have that conviction, the more we make effort. The more we realize what we have inside, we make effort. That effort, first and foremost, goes into practicing mindfulness, our key skill. And that begins with mindfulness of the breathing. Begins with mindfulness of the breathing and the body to put the mind on the breath, to put the mind on the body. This is our first task to come out of the head, out of the thinking, out of the stories, into the body. We use the breath as our gateway to the body. So it's so important. You know, we talked about you know, the hawk and the quail. And we want to get back to our ancestral territory, this body. Everything that we need is within this body. Everything we need is within inside of ourselves. See how that conviction works. You know, if we have conviction in what's inside of ourselves, we'll make the effort to practice mindfulness in service of bringing our awareness to what's inside of us. When we practice this mindfulness of breathing, uh, really, in what we're doing is uh, building that home for the mind, right? We're building that home for the mind. Uh, we're cultivating an easeful breath, an easeful and pleasurable abiding in the body, uh, so the mind will stay right here inside, because this is where we find the truth inside of ourselves. So, you know, the Buddha's genius was, what do I need to do to get to the truth? Well, the truth is inside. How am I going to stay there? Well, I'm going to cultivate a pleasant abiding in the body. To the extent that we're able to be in the body, to the extent that there's concentration, there's insight. So when there's concentration, insight occurs. So we could say our purpose is to develop concentration, specifically jhana, right? The concentration that includes ease and pleasure so that insight occurs. Insight is what leads us to the release from clinging. We let go when we have insight. 
insight leads us to the end of suffering. You think of the Buddha as the spiritual doctor, and he uh, and he diagnosed our illness as suffering caused by the clinging that we're doing. The cure for that clinging is wisdom, insight. The Buddha makes clear in his teachings that the level of ins- the level of concentration that we need to attain in order to attain liberating insight is the first jhana right so we've talked about the first jhana that's what we've been striving to develop the first jhana when the body is suffused suffused with ease and pleasure the mind we're able to put the mind on the breath to keep the mind on the breath and we have this quality of equanimity the ability to keep the mind on the breath regardless of whether our experience is agreeable or disagreeable. So we work to cultivate this first jhana, and you know, everybody here, you know, kind of over the week has kind of experienced those jhana qualities, and sometimes there's been ease in the body, and sometimes there's been pleasure, and for some of us, maybe there's been times when the body was suffused, and maybe it was suffused with pleasure, like the Buddha describes in the Sutta for a while, and then that passed. And that's the path. That's the path that we're on. Ultimately, we want that jhana to be where the body is suffused with ease and pleasure, and we have the ability to stay with the breath. We want that to be solid. You know, we work to make that as consistent as possible, as consistent as possible. And ultimately, the mark of jhana is that you're able to call it up at will in all postures. So right now, can we connect into the qualities of concentration? Can we keep the mind in its home? Can we keep the mind right there, no matter what happens? You know, if I just start doing some ridiculous things, can you keep the mind right there? You know? If the sun comes out, could you keep the mind right there? So the Buddha tells us we need to develop that first jhana. But don't take my word for it. He says, I tell you, the ending of the effluence depends on the first jhana. Effluence effluence isn't a term that we've used so much or at all on this retreat. The ending of the effluence uh, depends on the first jhana. If you think of... uh, the end of stress. This, just this, is the end of stress, is the end of suffering when there's just hearing, just tasting, just smelling. If the end of stress is just walking, the effluents are walking and everything else that comes. You know, walking and not liking the walking, walking and loving the walking, the story about the walking, you know, the perceptions of ourselves as a walker. That's the effluence. The ending of the effluence, so there's just walking, just tasting, just sitting, just listening, is dependent on the first jhana. I tell you, the ending of the effluence depends on the first jhana. Thus it has been said, in reference to what was it said, suppose that an archer or an archer's apprentice were to practice on a straw man or a mound of clay, so that after a while he would become able to shoot long distances, to fire accurate shots in rapid succession, and to pierce great masses. In the same way, there is the case where a monk enters and remains in the first jhana. So he's kind of really describing there uh, that metaphor. It's kind of confusing, but he's really describing kind of what the skill that we're developing in the first jhana, you know, becoming skilled, becoming a craftsman. It's a skill. 
in the same way there is the case where a monk enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. We could do this like, you know, a concert, you know, like the singer has, let's sing the chorus. What's the chorus? Directed thought and evaluation. <laughs> accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. He regards whatever phenomena there are that are connected with form. We've been talking mostly about form. He goes through the aggregates. Whatever phenomena there are that are connected with form, sounds, smells, tastes, all the sense phenomena that are connected with form, feelings, perceptions, fabrications, and, cons and consciousness, he regards whatever phenomena as inconstant, stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, alien, a disintegration, a void, not self. It's easy. He gives these tougher than I am, right? I just said inconstant and stressful. You know? And then he says something interesting here, which is what I was talking about last night. He says, he turns his mind away from those phenomena, and having done so, inclines his mind to the property of the death of deathlessness. And that's what we talked about last night, seeing, uh, seeing the unsatisfactory nature of sense pleasure, sense experience, and letting go of it and turning our mind to the property of the deathless, Nibbana. He turns his mind away from those phenomena and having done so, inclines his mind to the property of the deathless. This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. So when jhana is developed, when this concentration is developed, uh, we are able to see. We're able to see clearly. We're able to have discernment. We're able to see the truth. You know, I always like what Tan Jeff says. Oops, turn this on. Yes. Uh, I always like what Tan Jeff says about this. He says, do concentration, insight will happen. That could be another mantra. Do concentration. Do concentration. You know, Ajahn Lee talked about that. You know, concentration being the hard work of the practice. You know, if we think of the three pillars of the practice, the development of the skillful qualities, concentration and discernment, another way of looking at the practice, as three pillars that we use to build a bridge over a river. Concentration is the pillar in the middle. It's the hardest to build. You have to build it. It holds up the bridge. You have to build it in the water and in the mud. Concentration is the hard work of meditation. That's what we've been doing here. We've been doing concentration. Doing concentration. We've been doing the hard work. And what I would submit to you some of you may argue with this, is that we've put in this work in terms of developing concentration, and doing, in terms of doing concentration, and we've had insight. Everybody here is at insight. Everybody here is at insight on the noble and transcendent level. Everybody here is at insight into the truth of suffering and the end of suffering and the cessation of suffering. Most of those insights you probably don't realize you had. Most of those insights you probably don't realize you had. Most insight develops in a way that's very imperceptible until at some point you hit a critical mass and it becomes perceptible. But most of the insights you have, you don't know that you've had. So you have to take it from me. You've had insights. We talked about this in one of the groups. What am I going to take here? Am I going to lose everything? No. 
you've had insights, most of them that you don't realize that you, ha you have. They're in the heart. They're in the heart. You have them. You're going to take them home. They're right here. You, you don't even have to put them in your baggage. They're right here. If you forget, you could forget the toothbrush, whatever, the insight will come home with you. One of my favorite uh, teachings, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite descriptions of this relationship between concentration and insight and how concentration, the development of concentration, leads to discernment, leads to discernment. Just in and of itself, it leads to discernment without us really having to do anything. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of that uh, is the description that uh, Ajahn Mahaboa uh, offered. Uh, and Ajahn Mahaboa was uh, uh, one of Ajahn Mun, one of Ajahn Mun's students, one of the great Ajahns in Thailand. In fact, he just died a few years ago. He was sort of the last of the great Ajahns of that generation. And this is what he said. When he talks about the citta, we've been talking about that. So that's the mind and heart, right? The citta. When the citta enters into a deep state of calm and concentration, the conscious awareness that is normally diffused throughout the body simultaneously converges from all areas of the body into one central point of focus at the middle of the chest. The knowing quality manifests itself prominently at that point. It does not emanate from the brain. Although the faculties of memorization and learning arise in association with the brain, direct knowledge of the truth does not. Step by step, beginning with the initial stages of samadhi, concentration practice, progress in meditation is experienced and understood in the heart, only in the heart. This is where, that's why, you know, you think, you can't necessarily think your way into knowing that you've achieved insight because that knowledge is in the heart. Step by step, beginning with the initial stages of concentration practice, progress in meditation is experienced and understood in the heart and only the heart. This is where the truth lies. And the meditator who practices correctly knows this each step of the way. When it comes to understanding the true nature of all phenomena, the brain is not a factor. It is not useful at all. The chitta's serene and radiant qualities are experienced at the heart. They emanate conspicuously from that point. All of the chitta's myriad aspects, from the grossest to the most subtle, are experienced clearly from this central spot. So when the chitta, when we enter into concentration, when we enter into concentration, our awareness, which is typically, you know, our awareness is kind of all over the place, right? So we're trying to bring our awareness into the body, but even when we bring it into the body, it flies out, it goes here, you've probably noticed that, you know? Uh, as the awareness, as the concentration uh, comes more and more into the body, it, it focuses in, in, more, in, 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 until at first jhana, in, at, the stages of at that stage of concentration, awareness converges right here in the heart. This is the knowing quality right here. It's right here. So, you, you know, the way, you know, you, you may experience that is that very simply as you develop concentration, you'll start to 
have this awareness of right here. And as your concentration gets stronger and stronger, there's more awareness right here in the heart. Uh, you feel it. It's right here. It can simultaneously converges from all areas of the body into one central point at the middle of the chest. The knowing quality manifests itself prominently at that point as the concentration gets stronger and stronger. And this is just isn't in meditation, right? This is in all postures. Then the knowing quality right here becomes prominent. You know? So you're always able to be in touch with it and it's always knowing. It's always knowing the truth. It's always right there. It's always right there. And your awareness, you know, it's, oh, it's there right now. It's right there right now. You're just not aware of it. It's there right now. It's right here. Only a few of you have that. Just a few. No, everybody. Do you think, do you think only a few of you would have it? No, everybody has that knowing quality right there. You know, as concentration develops, we become more and more and more attuned to this knowing quality. It's always right there. And in a sense, this is hard to describe, uh, your awareness, it's always right there in your awareness. It's always right there in your awareness, you know, when the concentration, you know, and that is not just in, on, you know, on the cushion or off the cushion. It's always like you always, you know, it, it, it's, it's like always like right there. You always know it's right there because your awareness centers right there in the heart. The breath just keeps you stabilized. The breath keeps you in the body. That's your stabilizing factor. But you live from right here. Your awareness is right here. So, you know, I always say the practice is a practice of out of the head, into the body, into the heart. Out of the head, into the body, into the heart. And, you know, it's a real thing. It's right here. The knowing quality is right here. You know, step by step, beginning with the initial stages of concentration practice, progress in meditation is experienced and understood in the heart. So what you learn, you're learning right here. What you learn, you're learning right here. I mean, you're learning certain skills that are all in the service of you getting right here, getting right here. And true knowledge, you know, we say this all the time, right? Uh, is it useful? That's like the classic one. Right? I know it's not useful. No. Does the heart, are you connected to that truth in the heart? That's why we ask the question. The question helps guide us into that truth in the heart. You know? So you say, well, I can't do that. Have you ever asked, is it useful? And you know the truth in the heart, right? You connect with that. So that's the difference. Is it useful? I know it's not. Is it useful? So you know, the more you are in your body, the more you are in touch with that knowing quality. This is where the truth lies, and the meditator who practices correctly knows this each step of the way. So that, what that means is that what you're doing is you're striving to know the truth here, not intellectually. You're striving to know the truth in the heart. You're striving to know the truth in the heart. Right here. When it comes to understanding the true nature of all phenomena, the brain is not a factor. We want to know the truth right here, not here, here, here. I mean, I mean, I know, you know, sometimes people say, what is he talking about? Oh, that sounds like weird. I don't get that, you know. Uh, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, you all actually do get it. You all get it. You all get it. You all get it. 
You can feel it right now, right? You know, I'm offering the Dharma, there's an intellectual understanding, you feel something in the heart, right? You feel something in the heart if you connect into that. I mean, that's a good Dharma talk, right? A good Dharma talk is go straight to the heart. Go straight to the heart. That's why we usually say, put away the notes. You know, just be there, be in the heart. Just be right there. We seek to know the truth, we find the truth in the heart. So in our practice, we move towards knowing in the heart because this is the place of liberating wisdom. The breath, as I said, keeps us in the body. So we understand in the heart. We understand our experience from the heart. We understand the Four Noble Truths in the heart, not in the head. I mean, we start off with an intellectual understanding, right? But ultimately, we're moving towards knowing the truth in the heart. We look at our suffering and we seek to know it in the heart, in the heart, the truth of our suffering. I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm suffering. You know, just we could do it right now. It's like, I'm suffering. Now, say it and just pause for a moment and let that truth resonate in the heart. I'm suffering. There's suffering in my life. You see that? You see that? That's what we want, you know? We want the truth to go right to the heart. So it's not so mystical or it's not something that we can't do. A lot of it, is developing the concentration, right? To keep the attention in the body, because you have to be in the body. And then a lot of it is conviction. Conviction in your heart. Conviction in the truth is right there. Because we don't have conviction, we try to figure things out in the brain, you know? But the truth is right here. In the heart, we understand the pain of clinging. We understand the pain of suffering. It's something we don't truly understand in the mind in the way that we need to. We really need to understand the truth is in the heart. Yeah, we understand, we've talked about this a lot in classes, you know, we understand that when we're uh, knowing that truth of suffering, you know, when we know the truth of suffering, when we experience the truth of our suffering that may be coming, you know, maybe you felt today, you know, that suffering from clinging to anxiety about going home, you know. And when we feel, when we feel into the truth of that anxiety, we know that what we're feeling, you know, we know, what, we, what we're knowing in the heart is the truth of that suffering, which is the truth of all the times that have led to that anxiety, that we felt that anxiety, that conditioned experience throughout our lives, right? And you kind of know that, right? I mean, it's not like the first time you felt that anxiety. What you're feeling is that lifetime of suffering. You know, the Buddha asked his disciples to know that, you know, what's greater? You know, all the tears you've shed in this lifetime or the water in the four oceans? The right answer, this is greater. 
the tears you have shed while transmigrating and wandering this long, long time, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing, being separated from what is pleasing, not the water in the four great oceans. And sometimes we talk about, you know, well, when, when you're knowing that suffering, uh, you know, that suffering is... Uh, that suffering is not just the suffering you're feeling right now. That's you feeling. That's what suffering is. It's the lifetime of suffering. Sometimes people go, "Well, that's an idea, right?" No, that's the truth. You know that in the heart. You experience that in the heart. How do I know that? How do I know what happened ten years ago, five years ago, eight years ago? How do I know if you believe what happened in a previous life? Truth is right there in the heart. The heart knows the truth of that. The heart knows that our suffering is caused by what we're doing. And the heart understands that we don't have to do what we're doing. We don't have to cling. We don't have to cling to the experiences of body and mind. I mean, that's a really hard thing to understand, right? You know, it's like we've talked about that a lot in a lot of the groups and the individuals, uh, you know, experiences like how, how do I not cling? How do I not cling? And we sort of want to know intellectually how we not cl you don't cling. The heart knows how you don't cling. Intellectually, it's not something that you can understand. That understanding of how we don't cling is in the heart. heart, we ha understand that we have the ability to let go. And we understand in the heart that these things that we're holding on to, the painful physical sensations, the mental experiences, the desire, the aversion, the dissatisfaction, the worry, the despair, the self-judgment, all of the sense experiences that we talked about that yesterday, you know, yesterday, we, we understand that we have the ability to let go. We have the ability to let go and not to cling to those experiences. We don't have to hold on. You already know that. You know, you already know that. We're just trying to tap into what you already know. You actually already know how not to cling. You know, it's like in coming in, I'm, I'm just being, I'm not, I'm being a little glib here, but you know, in coming in to ask me, how do I not cling? It's like, you already know that. You have to find out for yourself. The heart already knows how not to cling. It's right there. The problem is we're trying to figure it out, right? We're trying to figure it out. It's like once we really connect into the heart, letting go will happen. Once we develop concentration, that insight will happen. We'll be connected into the knowing quality. We'll know how to let go will know how to let go. See, we're a little impatient, right? Only the heart can let go. Only the heart can let go. But you have the capacity to let go. It's in the heart. So we understand these truths in the heart. We understand these truths in the heart. This is what the Buddha found. The Buddha didn't make it up. He found it in his heart. He found it inside of himself when he developed concentration. He found the truth in his heart. 
He found it right there and then he taught it. He didn't make it up. He found the truth of the Dharma by looking inside. And we have the same wisdom inside of ourselves that the Buddha has, the same truth, the same Dharma. I I love the way Tan Jeff describes this. He says, you know, eventually you get to know that Dharma inside. He said, then it gets interesting. You know, it gets interesting when you start to have a real connection to this knowing quality. So we start to get to know the knowing quality, right? By touching in, touching in, touching in. At first, you know, we develop the wisdom about suffering and letting go, and that letting go, uh, the end of uh, letting go leads to the end of suffering. Uh, you know, we, we develop that wisdom on an intellectual level, right? I mean, and, and we need that wisdom on an intellectual level. We go hear Dharma talks, we read, and then you know we study, so we kind of kind of know it. We kind of know it a little bit. Uh, and then what we're asked to do is, like, when we're meditating, start to apply what we've learned. So you try, you try to remember what you've learned. You know, so it means that you've got to study and you've got to think about it. And then when you are, when you have that little five-second window of observing, you know, the anxiety or the dissatisfaction, it's like, what did he say in that Dharma talk? You know, what did he say? You know? So we try to remember as we're looking, as we're looking. We start to, you know, and, 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 and what we start to do, of course, is we start to ask some questions. You know? Uh, you know, and what we're doing is what? You know, we're asking some questions, you know. Am I suffering? What am I doing that's causing suffering? Is there clinging here? Do I have to hold on? Do these objects have to be held on to? Are they mine? You know, I mean, this is a very important stage, uh, the asking of these questions. But what we're doing, of course, is we're inclining our awareness into the chitta, into the heart. You know, we're inclining our awareness into the heart. What does Tanjav say? We learn to use the head to connect to the heart. We learn to use the head to connect into the heart. Over time, we develop concentration, concentration. We're more, we have more and more, we're more and more connected to the heart. Eventually, you don't need to ask any questions. You don't need to think, what did he say? You know, you just look and the heart knows. You just look and the heart knows. You just look at that sensation in the body or that aversion or that dissatisfaction and you see it with the heart. And that's when you have liberating wisdom. You know, liberating wisdom is going to ha- come when you see it purely with the heart, which means you have to drop the veil of the thinking eventually, because that's just kind of getting in the way a little bit. You know, is it, what am I clinging to? Do I have to cling? I mean, that's getting us there, but eventually it becomes a hindrance. We let go of it, and we just know things purely from the heart. You know, the metaphor the Buddha used is like uh, a raft. You know, you build a raft to get over the river. Once you get over the river, you know, that's all the studying and the thinking and the reading and all of that. You know, the learning that we're doing, the questions that we ask when we're meditating. Eventually, you know, when you get across the river, you don't carry the raft around with you. It becomes a burden. All that stuff that you know becomes a burden. You're already in the heart. Now you're trusting the liberating wisdom of the heart. That's why... 
you know, Ajahn Mahaboa, the Thai teacher, said, you know, the truth goes straight to the heart. Straight to the heart. Straight to the heart. Now, gradually, we're connected to the heart, the citta, in all postures. In all postures. You know, that's why it's so important to be able to, you know, I mean, it's the ultimate reason why it's so important to be able to call up concentration at all time, to be always able to hold your spot. And then the motivation to really, you know, develop your concentration and try to stay with the breath becomes strong, a lot stronger when you know that it enables you to connect into your innate wisdom and to the love and compassion that's in the heart. You know, so gradually we're connected to the heart in all postures. You know, the hardest is when? The hardest is when there's turmoil. You know, it's a little bit of a catch-22 because we want to look at our suffering, you know. But the hardest, you know, if we think, you know, when there's turmoil, we think of like life experience turmoil, you know, that's when it's kind of the hardest to stay in the heart in many cases, right? That's where equanimity comes in. Equanimity enables us to keep our spot, to maintain our awareness of the body so that we can always be connected to the heart, always in touch with that knowing quality as we move through life, and that knowing quality guides us as we move through life. We depend less and less on the thinking mind, which can only take us so far, and more and more we depend on what's inside. You know, it's like, it's like the, the athlete or the musician, you know? I mean, you learn your skill, your craft, you learn how to play, but eventually you have to forget what you learned. You know, you can't be thinking, you know, Eric Clapton isn't going, where do I put the finger? How do I make the G chord? You know, I mean, he's just booming. You know, that's what a, a great athlete does. A great athlete is, you know, is just not in the head, not in the head, just plays. You know, we talked about that the other night with my friend George, who teaches, who, who works with athletes. You know, and what he's trying to get them basically to do is to think less, to think less and to trust their athletic ability. And of course, remember what I said the other night, the great athletes, the great athletes at the very highest level of performance have complete conviction in their athletic ability, so they just let it, they don't think about it. You know? And that's why, you know, that, that's why the line between the good athlete and the great athlete, or maybe the good musician, or the good artist and, and, the, and the great is you know, confidence confidence in what you have inside. George had said he's the one athlete, he's only one athlete that he ever worked with who had, you know, that complete conviction on what he had inside of himself. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. You know, and he said, you know, they used to meditate before every game. And, and you know, George said, you know, Michael didn't need to meditate for one thing, you know, and he didn't really like it. But he did because he knew if he meditated, all the other guys on the team would do it. See, that's when you're really connected with the heart, it's not just about you. You understand how, you know, you understand your relationship with others. You know, I, I, that's my favorite part of, you know, when he talks about Michael Jordan. You know, he did it because he knew, you know, he knew in his heart, and that's how he could connect to others by doing it himself. He wasn't, you know, some kind of prima donna. You know, so we seek to live from the heart, to relate to others, just like Michael Jordan from the Chita, from the heart. Typically we don't. You know, we may not relate to others so much from here, right? 
You know, we may not be centered and not in the body when we're relating to the other and our awareness is diffused. Maybe it's in the head, maybe we stay in the body. It's not, you know, we're not so much in the body and we're not in touch with the knowing quality. You know, where our awareness isn't diffused into maybe views about the other person. Nobody ever here has views about other people. Liking and disliking, you know, for the most part, we're gonna consider people that we are relating to either as pleasant or unpleasant. So, you know, the tendency of the mind is to go into not liking and disliking, which cuts us off from the heart. Or we may find some people neutral, so we go into a diluted state. We don't even really see them. You know, so there's this veil of uh, there's this veil that's between us and the heart. You know, the awareness is diffused. You know, there's the veil of preconceived notions. You know, the people we know, we don't really see them. We see our perception of them, and that stands in the way of really knowing them. We have an idea. You know, particularly maybe the people you know really well. You know, and we relate to their, our idea of them, but not really them. We're not really in the heart. We don't really see the person. We see the idea of them. You know, when we're present, when we're in the body, really connected to the body and the breath and connected to the, to the cheetah, we see right through that veil. We see right through that veil. We see others with the heart. We see into the truth of their hearts. We relate to them with love and compassion. We talked about this a lot last year on the Metta retreat. And you know, we talked, particularly when we got into talking about neutral beings and all beings, how you know, we really don't see the other. We really don't see the other. Uh, you know, I talked about what Camus said, that uh, we never really look into the beauty of others' faces. We never really look them in the eye. You know, we look away, or even when we look at the other, we're not really looking, you know, into their faces. You know, you know. I mean, sort of the most blatant example of that is walking down the street in New York. You know, whatever we can possibly do to to not look into somebody's face. You know, the retreat we're looking down so that we can develop the strength and skill so that when we do look up we can look into the other's face. We can see the other clearly and not through the veil. You know, when, we, when we look at the other clearly from the heart, we see these beings, all these beings have a wish to be happy. We see right into the truth of their hearts. We strive to live from the heart when we're in the world. And we see the world with the heart instead of through the veil of our views and our liking and our disliking and our preconceived ideas, our perceptions. You know, it's like, you know, we have all those things about where we live, you know, the apartment, you know, the street that we live on, the job, the people, as I just said. You know, when we live from the heart, we drop, you know, we're dropping all the perceptions and the thoughts and the disliking, you know, and we look at our experience, whatever it is, as though we're looking at it for the first time. Because that's the truth. We're looking at it for the first time. There's nothing you've ever looked at that you haven't looked at for the first time. 
There's nothing that you've ever looked at that you haven't looked at for the first time. The heart knows that. Every moment of life is new. Every moment of life has been conditioned by all the moments before it. Every moment of life is complete, is different, is new. Every day is new. When we look at the world with the heart, we see that. We see that. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you walk down the same street every day, right? We all walk down the same street. You know, we never pay attention to it, right? And then one day, for whatever reason, you got crazy. You walk down a different street. It's like, man, this is like a really cool street. Look at all these things. Oh, man, it's like so, you know. I mean, that's kind of how we are, right? That's kind of how we are. You know, we can always be that way, looking at that street, that it like it's a new street, you know, when we look at it with the heart. And we live in these dream states, you know, this is what the Buddha said, these states of becoming, these thought worlds. You know, we're striving to live from the heart, present, 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 in the body, awake, and in the truth of the heart, connected to the citta, right here, right now right here, right now, right here, right now, in this moment. In this moment, there's no backwards and forwards. All there is, is this moment right now. There's no time. There's no time. There's no backwards and forwards. Those are ideas, concepts. We let go of those. We're in this moment right now. No backwards, no forwards. This moment is timeless. This moment is deathless. You know that. You know that when you're in the heart. That's what we strive for. We strive for the deathless. We strive for the deathless. It's not some abstract idea. The understanding of it is right there in the heart. T.S. Eliot said, you know, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. You know, costing not less than all of our ideas and thoughts and liking, likes and dislikes and perceptions and preconceived notions. That's what we've been talking about all week. And we put all those things aside so that we can live here, so that we can live in the timeless now, so that we can live in the deathless. It's the only way out. It's the only way out. So we seek to live from the heart, not the head, just the way you know that artist or that athlete or that musician, not thinking about what we're doing, not thinking about the moment, but being in the moment, letting the heart dictate our relationship to the moment. The term that's sometimes used in the Dharma, internal assurance. You know, there's just complete faith and conviction in the heart. So we strive to live from the heart so that we can create our lives, shape our lives. It's like one of my mentors used to say, think of your Work, life is a work of art. It's a work of art. It's like every day, every moment is that blank, blank canvas that, you know, that you're meeting. You know, if the artist doesn't look at the work that way, then it's no longer art. It's usually probably something they're trying to sell. You know? So every day, every moment is that blank canvas. We look at our life as a work of art. We paint our masterpiece. You know, the musician creates the symphony, you know, musician has that music inside, right? You can't describe, what is that music? Nietzsche said, try to describe music, can't describe it. 
You know, he was he had a relationship with Wagner, which eventually he split from him. But you know, he was very interested in music. Try to describe music using fabricated terms. You can't because it's unfabricated. You know, that's what the musician has that understanding of the unfabricated. You know, and creates the symphony. But we have that within ourselves. We create our own symphony. You know, we write our own symphony. So we strive to think less and not rely so much on thinking. You know, you know, be in the body. Be in the body. This is why we need to be in the body. I mean, the body isn't the answer, if you will, but it's the way to the answer. It's the way to the answer. It's the way in. It's the way into the heart. You know, we stabilize here just the way Ajahn Mahabhuva says, you know, at concentration, when it reaches that level of the first jhana, the awareness converges right there in the heart. And that's why it's so important, you know, to stay in the body in meditation. You know, those kinds of meditative states when you get, you know, we want to stay right here because this is where the answer is. This is where the truth is. So we seek to think less. This is what the Buddha had to do. You know, this was the beginning of his finding the truth was he had to really work on his thinking. You know, once he was able to really work on his thinking, then he was able to develop jhana. So we strive to think less. We are heedful of our thinking. We strive to be in the body. We develop a daily practice. You know, we make a commitment to that. We seek to maintain the breath and the awareness of the body in all postures. Buddha Dasa said, don't do anything that would take you out of your body. We seek not to get so caught up in the ways of the world because there's so much noise out there, so much noise in the world, so much noise in the mind. We seek to have more silence and more stillness so that we can be more connected to the heart. You know, we don't seek to become less involved with sense experience and, and incline more towards uh, stillness so that we can experience stillness. It's good, but there's something beyond that. We do that so that we can be more and more connected to the heart, so that we can live from the heart. We say, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, I've given examples of how we can do it. I mean, I always go back to what I learned from Ajahn Amaro years and years and years ago. He said, you know, when you have to make a, an important life decision, don't think about it. Don't think about it. He said, you know, he, he actually, I, I think he had like a legal pad like this when I, he was talking about this. And he said, usually what we do when we have, you know, try to make a decision is we make a line down the middle. If we don't do it on a piece of paper, we do it in our mind. And we make pros and cons. And there's always the same amount of pros and cons because that's how the mind is. That's the mind. That's because that's the nature of the mind. That's just the nature of the mind. Yeah. So if you have to make a decision, try to live in the question, what should I do? I've been doing that ever since. At first it was hard because I didn't have faith, so I'd try to think about it. I've done that ever since. I've given students that suggestion. People come in to me, should I get divorced? Should I do this? Should I do that? What should I do? Don't think about it. Try to live in the question. Nobody's ever come out back to me and said that was bad advice. In fact, everybody came to me and said, you know what? I knew exactly what to do. I knew exactly what to do. It was right there. Because it's always, it's right there anyway. I mean, you already know what to do. It's in your heart. It's, you already know what to do. 
talked about you know parents and children and uh, you know I remember years ago somebody came and I might have even told the story in some form. Uh, I'm having difficulty with my child and you know I want to relate to her with more love and compassion. So I said, this is what you do when you approach your child, ground yourself in the breath, bring your awareness here and say, I'm going to relate to my child with more compassion. What else? Just do that. So she went home and she came back a week later and she said, that's incredible. That was incredible. I just started doing that. How did that happen? That happened because she knew what to do right in the heart. She used that fabrication to move her awareness into the heart. And the heart knew exactly how she needed and what she needed to say and do with regard to her child. You already know what to do. You already know what to do. You already, you already know that the heart can lead you to happiness. You just have to rely on it and develop that connection more to it through the concentration practice. a lot of those small things. I mean, I think, you know, one of the real small things I've noticed over the last few years uh, in teaching fabrication, you know, really emphasizing, even with beginner students, use directed thought, be mindful of the breath, be mindful of the breath, stay alert, stay alert, stay alert. Uh, Are there hindrances? Are there hindrances? Practice with love, stay with the breath, stay with the breath. You know, and what we teach, of course, is really pay attention to the voice you're using. Really pay attention to the voice you're using. You know, usually we're using some voice, you know, you know, the second grade teacher, Mrs. Crabtree, you know, who like yelled at us, or the kids on the schoolyard, or dad, you know. Find your voice. Find your voice. And that's a way into the heart. You know, find your voice when you're guiding your meditation. Find your voice. It's like you could listen to a guided meditation you're better off listening to your own guided meditation that you offer yourself every day because you're learning to stay with the breath and do what you need to do, but you're also learning to connect to your heart in that very simple way. That's what Tanjeff calls the lessons of fabrication. So, end with a little story about my own experience last Wednesday. The day before the retreat. The day before the retreat. The last day long, actually, I gave a talk on impermanence. And I was inspired to give the talk on impermanence. Some of you were there because one of my teeth had broken off like the day before. And I was writing the Dharma talk, and it was like my tooth broke off. And I said, I'm going to write this talk on impermanence. This is what I need to do. A few days after that, another tooth broke off. You know, it's like sickness, old age, and death. You know, it's like these teeth are just like breaking off. Parts are falling off. So last Wednesday, you know, it was like the retreat. Dr. Karyak, my dentist, you know, it's like, I got to be up at Powell House on Thursday. You know, can you see me on Wednesday? You know, do something. You know, it's like... You know, so, all right, I made an appointment, my dentist, I you know, take the train out to Long Island, my childhood dentist, believe it or not, you know, and I was out there on the train, I was driving out on the Long Island Railroad, maybe that triggered something, but I, I was just 
in such despair. I was just in a place of such deep despair. My teeth are falling out. I'm getting old. My life is going. I mean, basic garden variety despair. You know, you know. I don't have to tell you, right? I don't have to go into the description. And and, and I was sitting on the train and I was crying. You know, I was crying. I was like, holy shit, you're crying. You know. You know. And then I got to the station and I went in the dentist. You know and. You know, I was on the train uh, coming home, and it was like, what's the way out of this despair? Is there a way out of this despair? You know, and I just asked the question, and you know, the answer was right there. It's through your goodness. It's through your goodness. You know, this life has great meaning. You know, this life uh, has joy and happiness as long as you stay connected to your goodness. It doesn't matter how many teeth you break, you know. It doesn't matter all those other things. What matters is what's in the heart. What matters is what's in the heart. So then I got off the Long Island Railroad. I told you this was a story. <laughs> and I was like, I have this goodness. You know? And that was like, oh yeah, I can find a way out of my suffering. I can find happiness. Everything shifted in that moment. Everything shifted in that moment. Life begins on the other side of despair. You know, the heart will see us through. It's the only thing that can see us through. That's what we turn to. So I was on the subway. This is where the story gets... For me, well, I don't want to dampen it. So I'm on the subway, and I'm on the A, A train, I think, you know, uh, from Penn Station to 14th Street you know, to get the L. And I'm on the subway, you know, and it's a typical subway car, and I'm standing there, and I just have this experience. You know, I'm not one who has, like, these super normal experiences. And I just looked at the people on the subway, and I saw their goodness, and I saw their into their hearts. I mean, I'm not saying it was an idea. I mean, it was like I just had this x-ray, and I could just see right into their hearts and their goodness, every one of them. You know, and there was just, like, gold right there. Their hearts were shining. You know, their goodness was just, it was just, it was just one of those things. You know, I was kind of blown away. There were these two homeless guys, you know, no different. I mean, I just, their goodness was just as profound as the Buddha's, as profound as the Buddha's. You know, it was one of those moments, you know, like they say, at concentration, you know, you reach the higher knowledges. You know, the only one that you really have to reach is the, the Four Noble Truths, but somehow I just you know, connected into that space where, and I just saw right into their hearts, right into their hearts. It was, it was, I just saw it. It was, it was a light coming from each one of those beings, you know, and then it gets even better actually. So then I got on the L train and then I got off the L train at First Avenue and I came up on the street and all the beings were like shining from the heart, you know, and it was just, I mean, I mean, I was crying, you know. I mean, I could just see right into the truth of their hearts, right into the truth of their goodness, and their hearts were shining. You know, and, and the thought that came to me was like, how can we ever say that all beings don't have a light inside? How could you ever say that? You know, it just came to me. And then, of course, the corollary to that is, how can I ever say that I don't have a light inside? How can I ever say that I don't have a goodness inside? We all have this within. We all have this goodness. We all have this innate wisdom. 
that Ajahn Mahabho was talking about. We all have the qualities of love and compassion. We all have the Dharma inside. It's right there. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. You know, one of the groups, and I think in one of the Dharma talks, I talked about just this impression I was having on this retreat, like we're all on this journey. You know, sometimes, and even when I said it, it was like, I know we're on a journey, but I'm not sure where, you know? And then, you know, it was like, I finally I realized we're all on the journey to the heart. We're all on the journey to the heart. So let's just close our eyes for a minute.